Welcome to Burning Platforms, a podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology, decoding the politics of technology around the world. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we look at the splintering of the internet, the so-called splinternet, with former ICANN CEO Paul Toomey. But first, our wrap of the latest tech news with Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Guardian Australia Managing Director Dan Stinton. Dan, I thought the first thing might be to talk about the announcement from, I don't know if I meant to call them Meta or Facebook, the company that Mark Zuckerberg owns that is taking over the world, um, and their special initiative on um, Australian elections, which was announced with a little bit of hoopla this week because they're going to save us from ourselves. Yeah, um, that might be a bit of hyperbole, but let me um, let me give you a, a bit of a sense of what uh, of what Facebook announced. We'll give the audience a bit of a sense of what Facebook announced. So yeah, they revealed a suite of measures, effectively to counter misinformation and disinformation across Facebook and Instagram uh, for the upcoming federal election. Um, there's some multilingual education campaigns and assistance to prevent political candidates from being. Uh, hacked, but but the core of it, the main thrust of it, if you like, is an increase in fact checking. Um, Facebook has partnered with RMIT Fact Lab, uh, as well as uh, the Wire Services, Agents France Press, and AAP Australian Associated Press, to effectively check that information which users are sharing on the platform uh, is is accurate. Um, now, for clarity, misinformation and disinformation would not automatically be removed from the site once checked, but it would be demoted. So it would be uh, amplified less uh, in the, uh, on the platform itself. So, so by that rationale, I guess more, less people will see it. And they'll also notify people who try to share something rated as false uh, uh, with a warning label um, so to say that the link is, uh, or what they're about to share is, is potentially inaccurate information. So look, this is welcome in a sense. Uh, it's it's encouraging that Facebook are taking the federal election uh, seriously to some extent. Uh, I'm really interested. There's been lots of criticism about it, however, and I'm I'm not going to go through all of it because I'm I'm sure that um, all of us will have something to say on this. The point that I would make is one that again we've made in this forum many times, and that is that the problem with this approach is that you are effectively reactively dealing with information which is put up on the platform and not proactively trying to stop it from getting attention in the first place. And when you have an algorithm which uh, rewards uh, engagement first and everything else second uh, and bugger the consequences, um, the most controversial content, which often happens to be misinformation and disinformation, is the kind of content which automatically gets amplified by the algorithms and therefore gets seen by more people. And I'm not sure that reactively identifying that information and then downweighting it, I mean, look, I'm sure it will help, but a better approach would be to build in some of these other um, value judgments early in the process so that we, we can prevent these, this information from being seen. And further to that, if the fact checkers determine that this information is um, misinformation or disinformation is inaccurate, I, I don't know why you just don't remove it from the platform um, holus bolus and rather than just downranking it, I think that that's, that would be a more effective way of dealing with this. Look, there's a whole bunch of other things, the other criticisms that people have made, transparency, those sort of things, but I'm, I'm sure we'll get into, but uh, I would like to see this uh, being done more at the source rather than uh, at the end point um, for this to be effective. Uh, and But I'd, I'd be interested to hear what others have to say. Yeah, Lizzie, the, um, the starting premise for this, I reckon there's three, there's three holes. One is that um, there's no truth in political advertising in Australia. The second is there's no real requirements, even on traditional media, to 
meet ethical standards. It's it's kind of a self-regulation. And then you've got the platforms with a self-regulation code on disinformation. So there's this is elections, which is this highly contested emotional moment in our democracy, is really being self-regulated all around. Yeah, I, I'm also interested in the distinction between paid content and um non-paid content or I'm not sure what you'd call it organic um, because I'm kind of curious as to how um, ads that might be created by dark money in elections get regulated whether there should be things like pre-approval and then accountability associated with allowing advertising that is um, misleading and how you even set up tests for that whether we should permit political advertising on Facebook you know how you could draw boundaries around that as well but then also there is a transparency point around this because um Facebook did used to publish more information about what were popular posts on its platforms. It's wound that back in recent times. It's now saying it will publish some information, but it's quite limited. I think it would be really interesting for everybody, uh, not just researchers in this space, but also the general public, to know how some of the uh, audiences for political advertising is how they're being curated, what kind of inputs are going into them so that we can see how um, the machine works as well. Because uh, it's not just also the ad itself and how it gets approved, it's who they think they're targeting, which I think tells you a bit about what kind of strategy some of these political operatives take into an election and how they seek to manipulate these platforms to suit their own ends. I mean, I think it is really telling that countries like Australia and obviously the US get a much more special, specialised treatment in election context than lots of other countries around the world who just have to contend with uh, misinformation running wild. Uh, so I'm keen to say that this is better than nothing, but I'm also very uh, reluctant to reward behaviour in a context in which there's been repeated examples of uh, Facebook being asleep at the wheel in election context, electoral context that has real consequences for people's lives lives all around the world um, and the localized content moderation seems to be a good step forward in that respect and this should be the standard everywhere as a very bare minimum but yeah I do think there's a real question around how uh, sophisticated political operatives with money are becoming in manipulating and playing with the platform on its own terms and being quite successful about that and how we can make sure that that business model is explained to the general public or that material is accessible to journalists to report on it effectively uh, so that that doesn't create a filter bubble, create a sense of um, people seeing different electoral campaigns through paid content as well as organic content. Um, and we can have bigger discussions about how these platforms end up uh, manipulating the electoral process. Oh, you've seen um, a fair few elections from around the world. What's your What's your reflections on on the role of um, the big platforms and the way our democracy rolls out? Oh, this it, is a very difficult question. I mean, it, it always has struck me about Zuckerberg. He's like, he's like Dr. Frankenstein. He built the monster and wants somebody else to solve the problem for him. Um, and my only my only observation about this, and something related about the Ukraine, is uh, I first heard quite a lot of detail um, about disinformation campaigns by the Russians in elections and elsewhere. Back at the very beginning of the noughties, like 2010, 2011, I happened to just be in some meetings in Brussels. And what struck me as really amazing is how much the national security military types knew about this, you know, 10, 15 years before it actually became real in, in, in our elections and how long it took it to go from there to the politicians and others to know about it. So um, I think we've allowed this thing to, to grow to such a degree that um, I think the point about how do you have a universal rule is probably pretty important. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that because... You know, we, we now can see that you can manipulate, you know, manipulate the politics of of, of uh, Kiev, and later on you end up with <laughs> all sorts of outcomes for the rest of us, right? So, 
it's not a very insightful comment, but I, I just think places like Australia and elsewhere might be good testing grounds, but we should put in pressure for some sort of universal application for this around these platforms. These people, these people make so much money out of this. Yeah. Well, that's the other point I'd make. Like I work in the political game. We are putting, you know, I don't like to do it, but our clients want to get eyeballs and the money all go, like the amount of money going into Facebook this election will be astronomical. I love that they say they've got a dedicated team. I always love that that term dedicated. It makes you think like they're working 24-7 on it because they're so dedicated. But there's probably a few poor souls that are being given the job of doing the hotline if someone's going to complain about it. That's what a dedicated team looks like. The other thing that struck me, Dan, was that they're effectively then outsourcing to AAP and RMIT the responsibility for determining whether something's a fact or not, which seems to be another part of this creeping deferral back into traditional media paid services to keep the the, the platform's looking squeaky clean. Yeah, and to clarify, I mean, the RMIT team that's working on this is six people. So, I mean, let's not get carried away about how effective it's going to be. Um, I mean, look, AAP and AFP, the agencies that are helping them with this, are, are great organisations that have people that are really skilled at this. But, yeah, I share, your, I share your view that this is a responsibility that should really exist within Facebook. And they keep, they keep again, wanting to defer the judgment of a publisher and pretend not to be a publisher by outsourcing this. And I think ultimately these decisions are publishing decisions. So they have to kind of accept that. Um, if I could just make two more quick points on this before we move on to the next topic, what would be really welcome as well, by the way, is that this team, um, whether or not it's adequate or not, this team uh, and future teams should actually be in place 24 uh, seven all year round. I think we saw the problem in the U S election recently where there was a much larger dedicated team to making sure that the US election um, wasn't overrun with misinformation. And then that team was disbanded as soon as the election was over. And we saw the storming of the Capitol and Stop the Steel take hold pretty soon after that. So obviously, it's not just during election campaigns that this is a threat. I, I accept that it's probably a heightened risk then, but I think it needs to be in place permanently. The problem with these, uh, the advertisements, which uh, you've also talked about, Peter, there's going to be a, a huge amount of money going to Facebook on this. Most of the advertisements that appear are not moderated at all. So they are created without any human oversight before they are allowed onto the, onto the platform. The AAA, the AANA, the Australian Association of National Advertisers, their code of ethics um, states that advertising shall not be misleading or deceptive or likely to mislead or be misleading or deceptive. Um, at The Guardian, at least, we take that responsibility seriously. And so not just for political advertising, by the way, but for all advertising, and we will refuse ads that are likely to, to deceive. That's impossible to do so if it's all being done automated by machines. So, so no uh, Clive think- Palmer on The Guardian, Dan? Um, I won't go into specific decisions, but no, he hasn't advertised. <laughs> he, hasn't, he hasn't advertised with us so far, uh, Peter. He hasn't and you'll chose, know that he has, have, he has advertised everywhere cool else. Yeah. <laughs> we, but we better keep the discussion moving. Lizzie, you're, the, the thing that caught your eye this week was you, you obviously jumped onto ABC iView and was asked to give a little bit more of yourself. Yeah, I'm very disappointed about this decision. I have talked about it on Radio National, which I was thrilled about because I thought they would try not to discuss it. But uh you know, the ABC did float a little while ago the requirement to log in to be able to use iView. Um, they backed off for about six months and now they're introducing it whole hog. So you will now, to view things on iView, you need to ha- create an account and log in. Um, Vanessa Teague is um, a cryptographer, is doing some interesting work in this space. She's got a great YouTube video explaining um, some of the concerns that she's got from a privacy perspective. So there's first off this question around what kind of data uh, gets shared with third parties um, when you're mandatory required to log in to iView. Uh, there's a couple of ancillary questions that I think are interesting too. What does this 
you know, what are the implications for accessibility for children who might wish to access this platform? Um, what are the benefits of personalization? Like the justification given by the managing director is that people want personalization. That's what gets them to return to a website, which is certainly not my experience. I can't believe that I'm alone. I, in fact, think that the national broadcaster plays quite a different role in terms of offering a space that's universal for us to engage with culture and news and um, entertainment. So I, I am, I do think we should question this idea that personalization is some universal benefit or somehow um, something we should aspire to uh, for a national broadcaster. But to return to the key point about um, data sharing, Vanessa's made a really good video about this, talking about how the data moves um, through space when you log in at the ABC. And I suppose what really disappoints me about this is I think the ABC had an opportunity that if they were going to require logins and there was a justification for that, that they should at least engage in best practice and not be sharing it with third parties, particularly not ones where they may have commercial reasons to access and want to use that data. But also, even if they are sharing them with third parties, be transparent about what the arrangements are. Vanessa's requested the um, the arrangements, the contractual uh, setup for these third party sharing arrangements and was refused through. FOI, which I think is really telling. So we just have very little insight into it. And it seems just hugely disappointing, essentially um, a decision to engage in further surveillance of users of the platform, potentially leading to longer term changes in how they structure this as well, uh, because this may expand and become more invasive over time in a context in which I think an institution like the ABC should really be leading and explaining how people can protect their own privacy, why this is important what kind of goes on behind the scenes on most websites um, rather than further, um, you know, throwing their lot in with the uh, obscurity of this industry and the obscurity that you experience when you're a user engaging with it. So it's pretty disappointing to me. And um, thankfully, Amy's posted the video there. But when you have a look at this video, you'll, you'll share those concerns as well. Peter, I know you weren't particularly concerned about this at the beginning, but You've changed your mind characteristically. No, no, no. no. My disappointment is actually the lack of ambition in the idea of registering. Like, I actually think if you were building a genuine civic network, you'd need to register as a citizen. Like, I've got no problem with a registration regime. It's just that I don't, to register just to have your content prioritised, that there is so many other ways that you could be building a meaningful existence for people that want to be more closely connected to the ABC. The ideas that we floated in the book, The Public Square Project, around building communities of content and genuine input into um, broader decisions. But it just seems like this is going totally down the consumer route. And it just feels like a glorified cookie rather than anything that's been thought through of how we can build a better and more robust system. So um, I, don't, I just think the idea of a citizen registering on a public network makes sense to me and there should be protections around anonymity and that sort of thing as well. But, sh- but it is so different to the track they're going down to that I feel like it was a waste of time writing the book. So... I don't think that's true. But, you know, Vanessa in this video, she draws it back to the example of um, Burma or Myanmar where Facebook was implicated um, in genocide by essentially allowing um, fake news organisations, cultural pages to be taken over by the military. I mean, it's not entirely clear who was responsible, but infiltration, mass um, inauthentic activity to use Facebook's language, which resulted in in many um, commentators' minds in, in a situation that gave rise to genocide, shall we say. And the issue there is that 
you know, once you know what people are watching, you can start to create ads that suit them, like what we were just talking about before, um, particularly in an electoral context. So if they know that you're watching children's programs, they can make an assumption about who lives in your house. But if you're also watching things about history, you know, Clive Palmer has this famous ad where he claims this long history of his political party, which is entirely false. Um, you know, or you're looking at, um, you know, other kind of contentious programs on the ABC that have caused a lot of a lot of public discussion, like the Four Corners episodes on on the rape in Parliament House and the sexual assaults that occurred there. So there's all sorts of ways in which your viewing habits can then be translated using data analytics into targeted advertising, which has real implications for our democracy. Now, businesses do this all the time online. You know, why is the ABC mm. then also permitting this to it's occur? It's almost like building an advertising infrastructure. Now, Dan, you try to get me to register to The Guardian whenever I go in there and I always say not this time but what value do you get out of it like what is what is the argument for registration yeah so this is perhaps the one the one little bit of insight that uh, that might be useful um that I can add to this is that I mean even if you watch Vanessa's um video which is uh really well done I thought by the way I mean it basically steps through all of the information which is then shared with third parties when you register for ABC iView. Um, I differ slightly from you, Lizzie, in that I, I think that it is uh, really valuable being able to curate content uh, and personalised content. So I can understand uh, why the, the ABC would want to do that. What I think is um, really difficult, though, with what they've done or, or really problematic is the, the, the sharing of that information with, with the third parties. Because what it does is it effectively then enables, well, the ABC, firstly, to then be able to go and target those particular consumers with advertising on third-party platforms, you know, largely Google and Facebook. Um, and, you know, a lot of people might go, well, what's wrong with that? If the ABC understands what my viewing preferences are and then goes and targets and tells me about shows that I might want to watch, I don't see the downside. Sure, you could have that argument. The, the issue, though, is that the, all that data is then used also for Facebook and Google's benefit to create effectively lookalike audiences. So that also means now that everyone else out there can also target people that are interested in those particular pieces of content, including, you know, other media organisations, for example. So, uh, you know, we could potentially go and advertise our services to ABC viewers that are interested in particular kinds of content. But I and thought ABC network, was no advertising, Dan. No, but this is my point. The ABC is no advertising, but you can now reach those exact audiences on the third-party platforms, mostly Facebook, if you want to. So mm. you can create a lookalike audience, which is, you know, largely just these, these ABC audiences, uh, and you can advertise directly to them on Facebook to to get them to go to to other sources, which which might not be the ABC. So this is the thing that I don't think a lot of people realise is that it's the network effect of all of this data and the aggregation of all of this data that is actually where their potential for harm exists, or at least the potential for uh, invasions of privacy. And what the ABC, I don't think, has necessarily thought through the implications of sharing this information. No doubt they're going into it with the best of intentions, personalisation, the ability to advertise to their consumers, all well and good. The problem is, is what happens with the data after that. Uh, I might have said this once or twice before, but perhaps we need some new privacy regulation uh, and some purpose limitations. But I'll, I'll get off my hobby horse for a second. Yeah, Paul. Yeah, oh, look, I, I'm outraged by this. <laughs> Makes me very angry uh, at multiple levels. Um, let me just pick up that, you know, that last point. I mean, transparency is just everything. Myself and about 70 of my closest friends internationally are about to release a big report on this whole issue of, of, of how the, how the data, data markets work around the world, what needs to change. And if you think about it, there's three players in the data markets. There are what gets used as users to induce, I refuse, refuse to use that term because any drug 
drug industry has users, you know, we've got users, we've got people. Then we have data aggregators of which the platforms are part of, but which people have, and the influencers are either advertisers or political parties or, you know, whatever. Now, the influencers and the data aggregators have fully functioning markets. They have contracts, they have full disclosure, they've got terms, they can go to court with each other, they have negotiation. But over here on this side, we've got battery hands. Basically, you know, it's a form of serfdom where people get told you get this stuff for nothing or for free and they then pull this information out and monetize it over this side. This market's worth 600 billion US dollars a year, right? And the punters are getting basically ripped off. And our argument is very simple. Just make the market work. Let the users have, have some power and some control and some influence in the way that market works. And it doesn't mean to get the money, but that they have some transparency, that they've got some influence about how this happens. And here's the ABC stumbling exactly into the same problem. Every time I turn it on, I'm being forced to get information with no transparency, treats me like a dumb idiot, says, you know, just fill in this form, doesn't tell me why, doesn't want to tell me about exactly what those financial transactions are going to happen out here, either says it's stupid and doesn't understand or really does understand deeply cynical, right, and treats me like an idiot. The trouble is I own the bloody thing. Through my taxes, I own it. It's like, hello. And then I have my next level of concern I have with this is, and this is where I push back against the personalization stuff, if what you want to have is mixed up, personalized content that only I like, right, then I might as well just have YouTube channels. Right? What is the point of any editorial process if all I'm being given is things that are specific to me? I'll just go to YouTube and set up a whole lot of search engines and search tools and get what I want. Part of having a public broadcaster is some sort of public editorial function for which we get to choose and you know, that I, when I go on now and it gives me all these options, I usually learn about things I wouldn't have thought about, right? Just on that point, though, Paul, personalisation can still... Sorry, I've got a bit of an echo here. You can still, you can still feed in other content into personalisation. It doesn't have to be exclusively a filter bubble of information, right? It, it, you can put more into it. And I think you can probably do that more effectively with some level of curation of content that is, that is um, tailored to the individual rather well, than just knows, having... Dan? I mean, you're relying on well, somebody to do that and they're doing it with their own set of values without any kind of line of sight on it for people who are accessing the platform. I yeah, mean, it's can I say transparency of algorithms. Um, exactly. And can <laughs> I say, as somebody who is currently pregnant, I have witnessed this firsthand where somewhere, I've, I've kept my pregnancy as much as I can off the internet because I do not want to be bombarded with pregnancy ads because it's this huge market and someone has found It's about out, to get a lot um, worse, by the way, Lizzie, with this revelation. I mean, but anyway, go on. Exactly. I mean, here I am doing it, but hopefully they won't scan this podcast. But someone's found out and I'm already getting bombarded. I'm so on every platform I'm on. And I'm so angry about it because, I mean, what happens also if I'd lost the baby or something, which does happen to people? They get just reminded repeatedly of one of the worst experiences of their lives. Mm. But also I just hate being treated like an absolute lemming. Like, oh, yeah, now we know this. We're going to just absolutely bombard you. And all these obscure companies do it and you realize how a tiny little bit of information has tracked its way through multiple different platforms probably through being churned through aggregators as Paul described so I think it is important to think about the industry in terms of layers and you know we are treated like chumps I I just hate it anyway uh, I'm, I'm I, I think really you might have buried the lead there Lizzie congratulations <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyway yeah, yeah. hey um, I did want to and um, we're, we're as always, terrible um, agenda management on my place. I, I, I parked this last time. I just want to mark it really quickly. There, I'm old enough to still read Wide Magazine in hard copy and it gets delivered every month. But there was a piece which I'll put in the chat from 
over summer, which just blew my mind, which was about Amazon's use of customer data in the most haphazard way you could possibly imagine. And it starts like this, that Amazon's got apparently an internal culture. This isn't Amazon Web Services. This is Amazon, the retailer. Their, their culture is that no team should be so large that you can't feed them on two pizzas. So you've got lots of teams across the company who are all being given access to play with customer data to come up with the next delightful customer experience. And this story talks about how when GDPR came in and they realised they would have to comply with data, what a schmozzle the whole outfit was. And this isn't a mum and dad operation with a few Excel spreadsheets. This is like I don't even know if there's a term for data. It's not, it's, there's something bites. I was going to say acres of data. So it's worth having a read. I don't, I, I don't want to spend time going into it in too much detail because we've got so many other really fascinating things to talk about, but it might be a bit of a bounce into introducing in a bit more detail Paul and the work he's doing around digital governance. So a company like Amazon collects all this stuff. Again, as you said, Paul, we click it all. Um, is this the only way that we can manage this thing that's been invented over the last 40 years? No, and, and my perspective on this is why, and I think the Ukraine's sort of a fulcrum point of this, why should we throw up the values that we've had for 300 years in, in sort of liberal democracies at the behest of four or five large corporations out of California? I don't get it. Sorry. And I'm not against big companies. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not Elizabeth Warren. I don't think the answer to this is breaking companies up. But I just think it's uh, the analogy a little bit in my mind is labour markets. You know, we had surfed them for a long time. Right? And then with industrialization, people gradually were able to go and shift around and, and offer their, offer their labour and get more return for it and eventually have ways in which they could do that in, in collectors and get better returns for it, which created the middle class. And uh, it didn't stop capitalism per se. And to a degree, I think at the moment we are at the very early stages of the same phenomenon. And you've got these sort of robber baron companies in some degree, but we actually should be saying, look, we, there's a lot of what we learned out of our own history we should be applying. And one of the things that is the empowerment, the empowerment of, the, of the person, the empowerment of the worker is actually a good thing for this market. Give them, give them, first of all, let them control their own key data and control who has access to it under an obligation to ensure that it is really authenticated and accurate. Secondly, for data, which is not the stuff they can control, but which is inferred about them, which is a big part of this sort of, in the whole we get a whole conversation about inferred data and the internet of things, et cetera, apply the same rule that we've applied offline to online. If you've got asymmetric data about somebody that's very, it's very sensitive, we've had for four, hundreds of years, we've had rules in various societies, which are rabbi, member of the community, um, uh, psychiatrist, client, patient, client, civil servant, citizen, etc. Where you've got these degree of asymmetry, asymmetry powers and, and data stuff, the rules have been the same. It's been you need to use the data in the best interest of the subject, data subject, and the best interest of the data subject doesn't mean necessarily. I, I'd argue that's a sort of human rights test. It doesn't mean I give you better advertising, as we've seen Facebook. You know, with you know, here's an advertising classification for 16 year old girls with emotional, emotionally distraught. You know. <laughs> they literally had that as a bad that as a classification. So I think, you know, again, we can go on about this for a long time, but one of the things I think is really important now is to say, 
we need to keep evolving this market. We need to evolve it around the values that we've, we've had and we think, we think are important. And I don't think it destroys these businesses if we start to shift around and say, no, no, the consumer has more power. It is simply a little bit, little bit like saying in, in, in factories, you know what, it's okay to have a labour union. And I, by the way, I think one of the key things that will evolve about giving people a greater sense of their own power and control as to who can access key part of data about themselves is you give the right of association, which means that, you, that, that people can negotiate in ter- bigger terms. Then, you know, a big company is not dealing with me individually. So this is the problem with the GDPR, the European regulation. It sort of assumes individuals and big corporates as the only entities instead of thinking about intermediaries in between. So does yeah. that go into the idea of, data trusts or like a data version of an industry super fund where you've got someone managing your data on your behalf because it well a data trust yeah that's right data trust is a specific thing you you agree that some of your data will be used for a particular purpose it might be medical research but the superannuation one is a good example where you might end up being saying several million people say okay we've we've aggregated and and somebody comes and works for us who's an expert in the field and says okay what do you want you know it, this is how all this data thing works. Which bits do you want? Do you want to say yes to that or no to that? Do you want a bit of a cut of the action of that? Do you want to have access to it? And you actually work out the terms for which that group of people, subsets of them can interact. So you could end up with, so the, key, the key thing with markets is skills follow the market, right? At the moment with the market we've got, all the skills about data and how it's used is with the advertisers and the aggregators and the influencers. They know how all this works in great detail. But the punter hasn't got a clue. And how do we shift it so that they, the people over here can have more of a sense? And that's what we've done in superannuation, right? We've ended up with, most of us don't know how the stock markets work, but we've ended up with people who represent us who are actually giving us benefits. So, yeah, I think there's something in there. The, the problem with, um, I mean, I think I, I agree with the thrust of what you're saying uh, there, Paul. Um, and by the way, with that early history lesson, I, I assume that you've read Lizzie's Future Histories because it sounds pretty similar to a lot of the themes that are in that book. But um, Thanks, Dan. Uh, Thanks for the plug. <laughs> <laughs> um, everyone should obviously read that immediately if they haven't already. But um, the point about data, though, it's it's often described, uh, this isn't my analogy, by the way, but it's often described as data is the new oil uh, and therefore has value which would facilitate these kind of things that you're describing, Paul. Um, a, a gentleman called Benedict Evans, who's a, a, an analyst, often describes data as sand. And I think that's a more appropriate analogy because it's it's actually not worth much for at the individual level, it's worth virtually nothing. It's the aggregated amount which uh, of, of all of this that that makes it worth something for these large companies. And also, it's so disparate, right? I mean, the data, someone liking something on Facebook, who owns that data? Is it the person that posted the photograph on Facebook or Instagram? Or is it the person that actually liked it? Like, there's there's so many applications to the data that I think trying to figure out a way where you've got individual rights over the data is problematic because there's just so many applications. I think a better approach would be doing GDPR properly, and which is to say you just put guardrails around what you can do with that data to prevent the, the companies making use of it for their own ends and, and allow them to get bigger and bigger and bigger. I think, and I always bang on about this, so apologies to everyone, but I think if there was purpose limitations around what these, uh, these companies could do with the data, then we might be able to put some restrictions in place, which would actually reduce its value and therefore would probably put some more rights back onto the individual almost almost by default rather than um, as the starting aim. But um, yeah. anyway. No, I, look, I agree, I, I agree with quite a lot of that. I, 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 we've thought about this quite a lot, obviously. Um, the value that I might get out of my data or access to my data may not, may not be financial. Mm. 
it might be my agreeing to that, that yes, you can promote certain things to me or that I'll sign up to be on part, a part of a particular community or there's all manners of value that I might get. And we, we've seen some examples which are not necessarily financial. Um, and I do get the, uh, and I also think one of the things we, we are arguing for is a real distinction in personal information, distinguish between what we, what we would call sort of official data, the sort of name and address and all that sort of stuff, from privy data, which is data I put up my, my photographs on it, plus then the sort of second level privy is the stuff that can be inferred. And for the inferred stuff, the test then should be more universal test, which is about, you know, you're doing this in people's best interest. It, it, it's breaking that data down. GDPR doesn't do that. My final comment would be this. If we were to get the market properly working across the entire space and individuals are better informed, have representatives who are better informed and can make trade-offs, we don't need governments to be constantly playing catch-up every second electoral cycle trying to put in legislation to catch up with the technology did five or ten years ago, which is what the system we've got at the moment. And rather than let's, let's let the, you know, my sense is make the market work properly. Lizzie, a market approach to a <laughs> yeah. burning platform? Well, I'm, um, I mean, I'm a lawyer, so everything I think about is through the lens of regulation as an effective way of, um, of creating a fairer society, I suppose, or one that reflects people's values rather than just those who are powerful. So, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, Paul, but one of the reasons why we don't have effective regulation or it's, it's delayed so regularly from being implemented is because major large tech companies intervene into the legislative process. And we've seen that repeatedly in the United States where consumer protection laws are watered down um, repeatedly as they move through or killed off entirely as they move through state legislatures. So I sort of think the argument about, you know, Elizabeth Warren's argument that you have to break up big tech, like I think it's sort of an, a necessary but insufficient condition because the original motivation for, you know, antitrust legislation in the United States was to limit the political power of large corporations, not actually to protect consumers. I mean, protection of consumers is one component, of course, but the problem is then those large entities um, organise themselves to impose upon society a form of regulation that, that preserves their market dominance. So I mean, I, I think that's one part of it. And then regulation could be designed that is very effective, that actually gets at the problem because I'm for alternative ways of organising around how we use data because it is a, a potential source of great value, not necessarily monetarily, not even in a market sense, but just in terms of managing problems like climate change or improving our health system. There's all sorts of ways in which data can be used in that way in the digital age that can be very effective. But the commercialization of it is currently what is driving its development and also limiting its capacity and potential to do those things. And so that has to be tackled, in my view, first through regulatory reform, through antitrust reform, through the introduction and protection of rights, I think, before we can get to the point where those other benefits can be unleashed. And so, I don't know, I, I, I like suing people as well, so I would also like to say consumers' rights enforceable in court. And it is interesting that the Privacy Act is going through a review at the minute that it suggests a number of the things that we've discussed here, including expanding the idea of personal information to include things like inferred um, information, but also an enforceable right in court for, for consumers and, and people to to sue companies that misuse information. So, you know, regulators are always behind, don't get me wrong, but um, there are a lot of options that are currently on the table that could be introduced in, in the event that well, probably after the next election, assuming it goes a particular way, I would have thought. I mean, I agree with quite a lot of that. I mean, I certainly think that we, we argue, with this report will argue that there needs to be some regulatory place to be able to put in place the market. So markets don't work just by themselves. You need to have aspects about it. Um, and there's someone who's done over 30... Um, 
congressional hearings in a previous life. Um, the degree to which American politics is captured by business is, you know, it's North's best practice compared to everybody else. Um, so, yes, I, 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 the, I, the problem in the United States is exactly the point you put, which is the power of the corporation, probably a little less so in the European market or, or, or places like that. Paul, you're, you're putting a proposition forward in the next, in, in days, which yeah. I've been following from a distance, um, and obviously it's way outside my, my competency level. But I, what did strike me was the way you've been framing this up that, and the phrase the splinter net sort of has enough zing for me to actually get what you're saying there, that we're actually at a moment where the internet is breaking. It's almost balkanizing. Um, you've got the Chinese model um, of a state control. You've got the hyper-capitalism of the states. You've got a rules-based system in Europe. God knows what we're seeing playing out in Russia and the Ukraine. Um, Elon Musk throwing a wild card with um, offering access around firewalls from outer space. So, But it seems to me you, you, you almost see... The, the imperative to get back to the original idea of a single network, is it? Or, or where do you see this going? Is, isn't it nat- Isn't it inevitable as this technology matures, it's going to reflect different political cultures in which it operates? And, and isn't that a good thing? Yeah, so um, one of the difficulties is that people see the internet, they think the internet's everything. And you know, a lot of people will think Facebook is the internet in their experience. Um, so let me try giving a very simple model. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about three layers and then most of the technical engineers will tear at me and say there's seven or eight. But anyway, let's just say there's three. First of all, there's, there's, the, there's the transit layer and that's basically the physics. It's the way in which electrons and things and radio waves are moved around that connect you, right? And those physics carry many things, including voice communications, etc. But that's the the, the NBN and the and the satellites and the and the microwave and, and all that stuff is the transit layer. Okay. And governments have been involved in that well. There was a period of time when that transit layer in the in the 80s and 90s was the so-called internet um, was was not regulated because it was it was in the, it was independent from the telephone companies. What then happened is the telephone companies realized they couldn't win that battle. They actually bought all the ISPs. Um, and yeah, and then we merged, the, we changed the regulation and so ISPs and these are now sort of effectively regulated. We've had regulation in that space for 120 years, mostly because eventually at certain stages, governments had to be involved in the capital raising of the early stages of the telecom networks. That's the actual origin of that regulation in many respects. So you've got that transit layer, which has always had government involved. The key thing that makes the internet is the next layer up, and that's called the protocol layer. And it's a bunch of basically mathematical mathematical principles and codes and databases that link several several million different networks to operate as a single internet. And I used to be the CEO of an organisation that coordinates all of that. It's called ICANN, based out of California. Most people haven't heard of it. That's a good thing because it means it's working. Um, but that's you, you'll have heard of .au, .com, and you'll have heard of an IP address and things like that. That's all that stuff that gets coordinated by that. Sitting on top of that is then the application layer, which is the content and then all of this stuff we're talking about now, the data that moves around and the stuff you put in, that's all at the application layer. Um, my argument is the governments have been concerned about content for about 5,000 years um, and they'll continue to be concerned about content and it is, as you say, culturally and politically driven. And so there have been elements of how to deal with that, I, I think. The difficulty is 
not to allow people to go to the second level in particular and try to use it as the way to get their objectives in the, in the top level. And if I can give you some good, some good examples, the, the Chinese government decided they wouldn't try to undermine the protocol layer. It would simply put a confluence around the, the transit layer. So basically there's five or seven gateways into China, but they're just five or seven, and they can turn them off or not at the transit layer. And then they do a lot of what's called the Great Firewall, a lot of filtering of the content level. They just watch huge amounts of it. It costs them a fortune, right? Um, the Russians recently tried the similar, similar thing because they got concerned about their network being international. Their network doesn't work anything like the Chinese network. It's got about uh, 5,000 networks, about a third of them IP addresses allocated by an entity out of, out of Europe. And most of the networks connect and peer outside Russia because the network is topological, it's not geological, it's not geographical. Um, and so they actually turned around and forced all of their ISPs to put a black box in the ISP. And the, supposedly the black box would let them control what data could go in. And they, they, they've been using the black box in the last several weeks. The difficulty is a lot of the technical people don't, are not necessarily in favour of, of Putin's regime. And so they do lots of runarounds. And there's a, we, go on, we could go on for hours about what's going on at the moment in, in that space. The, the Europeans and others occasionally come up with some, and the Canadians you know, come up with some mad ideas of trying to stop content in it, like by saying, go down and stop protocol layer stuff. And our most recent example of something we've been dealing with is a, a formal request from the Europe, from the Deputy Prime Minister of the Ukraine asking for the technical entities, ICANN and YPNCC in this case, to take Russia off the protocols. Right? So basically go down in this sort of golden egg thing and just say, no, you're no longer the protocol. And that, that fortunately was they said no to because that really does break the internet up. So we've got two levels of, several levels of splinternet. One is... Um, different geographies, the, the Russian, the Chinese and, you know, want, want state control, the Saudis want state control, the Pakistanis increasingly and others, or you've got the European models for how you use data, all the stuff we're talking about. That's got different ways to use it, but that's really around the content level. We don't want to see a breakup of the protocol layers, and we do have to watch whether people start change, changing their transit, uh, transit structures such that they force people to go through gateways, which a lot of say North Africa does. So, what equals a splinter net is depends upon which part of it you look at. It's like the old joke about the elephant, right? Which part of it you're looking at. So which part of it you look at is a splinter net. But I would argue very strongly the protocol level is the goose that lays the golden egg. It is actually the public good. And that's the thing we should be trying to make certain politicians and others don't start playing and thinking they can achieve their, their content requirements at the top level. Or is, is the reason for that that you're so nervous about this as a direction and trying to effectively censor at the protocol layer rather than the, the content layer, if I've understood you correctly, is the reason why you're concerned about that, not because it wouldn't be effective within Russia, but because it might be too effective and could make all governments around the world then take a similar approach in their own respective jurisdictions? Oh, look, look, look the, a lot of people are watching the Chinese model. You watch this, there's people in Africa who are thinking that might be a good thing. Thanks for like, I'll have one of those. And... The Chinese model is I have an intranet, essentially, and I've got five links between the internet and the internet. Mm. And then I use the same protocols, so that's very important. They don't, although they, they're always pushing in the ITU a new type of protocol for the internet, which is really an increased surveillance protocol, and there's lots of resistance going on there, um, and the fights are going to keep going on. But they they have this put, put, put limits on it, control it, and report back. And 
because they put a firewall thing up where there's sort of great firewall around it, they know who's watching what. I mean, it's in some funny sense, it is the feedback loop for their autocracy. That that whole firewall and watching what people do is their way of figuring out, you know, we have elections every three years to get a sense of the people's sentiment. They watch, they survive everybody every day and get a sense of people's sentiment. Um, and it's a funny sort of feedback that we have not seen before autocracies with finely attuned feedback loops. The, the difference, though, is that the, it's, the, it's the feedback loop itself which is modifying the, the population's behaviour. So sure. they're not necessarily getting an accurate reflection of what the population thinks. They're well, getting a fairly skewed reflection, right? Right. So it's, it's a feedback loop and an influence loop, loop at the same time. Mm. Right? But you can imagine how attractive that is to country after country. Mm. There's a great it's a, it is a fundamental question about what does the 21st and 22nd century versions of democracy and, and, and governments look like. We've had these assumptions that the democracy gives you these various benefits, but maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe the other one gets benefits as well. You know? For people who are a bit more visual, maybe like me, I don't know. There's a great artist called Trevor Paglin who um, photographs undersea cables and he goes and locates them where they um, shoot offshore and uh, takes photos of them. What I always find alarming is that we don't really think about the internet as being cables that physically connect um, countries, obviously, but also, of course, people in, in the application layer. And you, you just, there's, there's not even that many maps that exist of how these cables uh, exist in space. And um, I do think it is interesting to rethink how you're conceptualising it in all these different formats, because they're governed in different ways, um, socially and politically, and also take different physical <laughs> forms. So anyway, I'll, I'll find a link to his work and put it in the chat. Um, but that is the, the question I, I suppose I was going to press a little bit harder into, because if you are able to affect as an autocrat or an aspiring autocrat, regulate the internet in ways of your choosing without having to uh, manipulate or seek to alter the protocol layer or the more fundamental layers of the internet. What, what is different about this particular conflict that's given rise to this suggestion? I mean, you know, China's been doing very well managing um, censorship and, and their autocracy without having to make a call for these kinds of things. What, what, what's changed in this conflict and, and what are the potential implications in terms of the precedent for future conflicts in your view, Paul? So I think one of the things that's happened in Ukraine is, first of all, there's been an attempt by the Ukrainians to try to just do anything to diminish Russian capability, and so this was one of their calls, and they're wanting sanctions and everything. Uh, the other one is a certain degree of naivety, um, naivety by some, and I don't want to define who some are, that, for instance, the Russian military would presently be using the public internet. You can guarantee once they've gone to conflict, they've gone to the dark edge and they're not there. Um, uh, the propaganda, you know, the impact on the propaganda tools, it could be in the short term, certainly. But, the, you know, the response on some of the Ukrainian counter-propaganda has been amazing, buying advertising on, on uh, websites or on platforms, generating huge amounts of, 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 huge amounts of uh, cyber attacks and DDoS attacks on, uh, on, on Russian sites and all manner of stuff that's been going on. I, the, the, the difficulty is people will see this and they'll see the, the response and they'll go, well, you know, we want, you know, it's like the Russians. I, I, I noticed Nicola on the, on the chat has just sort of said the Russians went through a process of saying we want this data on Russians held back and data in Russian territory so that they could ensure their laws applied upon people who are holding Russian data, which is a big, is a big thing for the platforms. Um, it was also an attempt that they were trying to get their data to be flying back inside the Russian territory. And I think we'll start seeing people wondering about where's my data flowing and we'll have another round of the data sovereignty debates. 
which again, the big, you know, the, the big platforms which are great beneficiaries of globalization are going to find themselves running again with data sovereignty, which is, you know, hold data on my citizens in my country. So in terms of your report that's coming out next week, where can people get hold of that, Paul? Um, and what would you like the conversation you start to, to, to spark? So it, it's, um, the report will be available at, at, at a, a site which is called the Global Solutions Initiative. Um, and it, it's an excellent, you've, you've got me one ahead. I'm, I'm so poorly prepared, Peter, that I actually can't give you a website at the moment that says here's the website to go to. That Mr. Else. Google or Mr. DuckDuckGo will find you. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but the report is um, creating digital empowerment. It's um, we'll make sure we get some coverage here, and get, you know, get, I'll share more information with you when we've got it all linked up. Terrific. Um, look, thanks for your time today, Paul. It's really fascinating conversation, and sort of got me with lots of questions that I will come to me after this is all over. Um, Lizzie, anything for us to put in our diaries for Digital Rights Watchers this week? Um, Digital Rights Watch is holding the next event in our plan on uh, rebalancing the internet economy, which I guess is pertinent to this discussion. And it's about the experience of activists and community organisers. That's coming up on the 7th of April. So if you want to participate and be involved in that, it's part of a longer term project that we're putting together on how to give um, rights back to people who use the internet and make it great, uh, at least in an Australian context. And I encourage you to sign up on our website. Beauty. And Dan, anything um, from the, the annals of The Guardian that we need to know about? Uh, well, the last time I was on this, uh, which yeah, was you were a month teasing ago, us. You were teasing. I, I, I said there was a, a, a big thing coming. So we launched that this week. Um, the Guardian this week launched our uh, a fairly substantial increase in our local reporting or state-based reporting. Uh, so on Monday, we've launched uh, effectively um, sections on our homepage uh, and distributed everywhere else for New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland. We've hired uh, editors specifically for those sections, as well as a whole bunch of reporters, uh, over a dozen people in total have been hired off this. It was funded by the deal we did with Google off the back of the news media uh, bargaining um, code. So Lizzie's uh, cheering. That, Lizzie must be delighted. But um, <laughs> but nonetheless, it's um, what it's enabled us to do is effectively do a whole bunch of additional reporting specifically for people that are in those respective states that might not necessarily make it onto the national agenda and therefore not be covered. And uh, I'm hopeful that this will be the start of it. Um, um, have a look at it if you are in those states. If you're not, stay tuned. We'll, um, we'll hopefully get to your state pretty soon. Excellent. Hey, thanks, guys. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live at a virtual town hall on March 18. If you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real life, you can register at our website, responsibletechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in a fortnight.